welcome to True Crime Time, where we talk about the underbelly of humanity. I'm Megan, hanging out with Carmen and Banks, my cats. You know them from the weird and disruptive noises from the last few episodes. Couple things. Um, It was brought to my attention several days after I posted the last episode that there was something weird about it. So I went and listened, and lo and behold, like an idiot, I had uploaded the two segments backwards. So if it sounded weird to you or very abrupt, it was. That's why. It has since been fixed. Thank you to Lou for that one. I mentioned this last episode, but I wanted to remind everybody that True Crime Time has an official Instagram page, so go follow for updates and pictures relevant to each episode. In the future, I'm planning on doing raffles and fun things, but if you aren't there, how will you know? Go join right now. The name is literally True Crime Time, all lowercase. Not even I could mess that up, hopefully. Um, I know I'm late to the game on this one, but I finally watched Abducted in Plain Sight and oh my god, how do those parents get involved in all of that and let all of that happen with almost zero questions asked? So naive. What a mess. Those poor kids who are traumatized forever, especially in Jan. Obviously, I'm not trying to victim blame since the parents were clearly bamboozled, but still, uh, so many signs, I cannot wrap my head around how all of that happened. Um, With everything I just said, I tried to be vague so I didn't spoil it for those of you who haven't watched it yet, but get on it. Um, Also, funny thing, there's a review of True Crime Time on iTunes that literally said, don't eat and something about saliva and stuff i cannot tell you how funny i thought that was i'm definitely not eating and initially i was really concerned that someone thought it sounded like i was eating when i wasn't i was like oh my god have i just gone through my whole life making weird noises and people thought i was eating all the time the answer to that ladies and gentlemen is no um i have not and will not be eating on this podcast ever. Um, so I hope we can all sleep a little more soundly with that information now out in the open. I may have to take a drink from time to time, so hopefully something, you know, everyone can live with them. I hope that's cool. So sorry. And now, a super quick commercial before we get into our case today. Today we are going to talk about Dennis Rader. You may know him as the BTK serial killer. Also, time out, it occurred to me when I said BTK killer out loud to someone, as you do. Um, Like, is that weird? Like, pin number? Because it's bind, torture, kill, which was his MO. But he was the bind, torture, kill killer. So that makes sense, right? We can still say that? Whatever. Moving on. Uh, Dennis Rader was born on March 8th, 1945. He was born in Pittsburgh, Kansas, but grew up in Wichita with his three brothers. He was the oldest, uh, and his parents, Dorothea and William. I searched high and low and could not find too much about growing up in the Rader household. It seems that everything was normal-ish. It has been reported that he tortured animals as a kid, so red flag, but there doesn't appear that there was any kind of family trauma that turned him into a monster or anything like that. Um, He was a Boy Scout and participated in youth group activities within his local church. He was an average student, 
didn't really do anything to stand out. According to Raider himself, uh, he started having bondage slash torture fantasies as young as elementary school, which, of course, he kept to himself. People knew him, or people who knew him, would describe him as quiet, polite, reserved, kind of boring, really. Not even into music, um, didn't really have a sense of humor, so generally like a piece of cardboard. Um, But nothing really odd, just kind of unremarkable. Uh, After graduating high school, he worked in... Sorry, my cat's ripping up the couch. Um, After high school, he worked in a supermarket. From there, he went on to college. Um, His college, Wesleyan, was... I hope I said that right. Uh, Too far away for him to live at home while he attended, so his life during this time was very busy. He was working to support himself, coming home on weekends... Uh, occasionally picking up a shift at the supermarket for cash. According to reports, he would uh, journal sporadically, and it was at this time he would start to troll for victims, though there was no major harm he did there at that point. Um, Just kind of the beginning of him stalking and such. He did start to do some B&Es, that's breaking and entering, obviously. Um, and taking small items, but he didn't hurt anyone. In 1966, he joined the Air Force. More boringness, nothing exciting happens. He becomes a sergeant, blah, blah. Um, I do think what's notable around this time is that he started soliciting and having relations with sex workers. His interest in bondage was brought up, but nobody he propositioned, or he propositioned, there's a word, was with that, but apparently he kind of went with that. He just put it away in his mind for later. Raider was discharged from active duty uh, with the Air Force in 1970. He goes home to Wichita, meets his future wife Paula at church. They're married in 1971. Dennis goes to work in another supermarket. Paula is a bookkeeper. Dennis goes back to school. He actually earns two different degrees, one in electronics one in administration of justice, which I think is just criminal justice now. Uh, Though it took him a long-ass time, something like six years, he was a crappy student. I can relate. Uh, He wound up working for Cessna, which is a small aircraft manufacturer, but was let go in 1973 due to the oil embargo crisis. Uh, So he's bummed out. He's having a rough time. Always in the back of his mind are his secret fantasies. So it's 1974, between jobs, he takes to driving or walking around school campuses and neighborhoods, picking out women who he deemed good prospects, fantasizing about them, um, what he would do to them, that kind of thing. Uh, Still, this stays internal. He doesn't act out on it. In 1974, it should also be noted that he snags a job with ADT, which is a home security company for those of you who are not aware, which undoubtedly gave his creepy stalker side a thrill. And he would actually work with ADT as an installer from 1974 until 1988, which, yikes. Uh, Interestingly, as far as I could tell, none of the crimes he committed occurred in any of the homes he had access to through his job. In January of 1974, he spotted Julie Otero, 32 and her daughter Josephine 11. They were new to the neighborhood. 
Dennis felt a pull to them and he decided he would follow them and watch them. He found out where they lived and he watched the house. He learned the family's patterns. Um, so the family, just to kind of break it down for you guys, Joseph, the father, and there's um, four children, Charlie, he's 15, Danny's 14, Carmen is 13, and Joseph Jr. is nine. On the 15th of that month, he gets together the tools he thought he would need. So a gun, cords, knives, and your average B&E tools, and entered the backyard around 8 a.m. He cut the phone line. Um, side note, I got a lot of detailed information from Dennis Rader, BTK Killer, a biography on Blogspot. I was on Wikipedia as well, but they in no way had details like I'm about to share with you, just so you know. Uh, Raider decided to go through the back door, but he was surprised because he had thought only Julie, that's the mom, and Josephine and Joey, the two youngest children, would be home, but instead came face to face with her husband, Joe. Raider, while brandishing his gun, told Joey, who's the youngest, remember, um, to put the dog in the backyard. He informed the family that he was a criminal and he wanted money from them, as well as food and a car. So the family was ordered to lie down in the living room, but then he decided the bedroom was better. He tied all of them up. Allegedly, at this point, he put a bag on Joseph's head. That's the father, though. Uh, He struggled, so Dennis decided to use some more complex ligature to subdue him and then kill him. Uh, Raider moves on to the mother, attempting to strangle her manually, but this did not go according to plan. She was unconscious for a time. Uh, He thought she was dead, but then she came to. He did strangle her again, this time successfully. She pleaded with him to spare the children, saying, God have mercy on your soul, which is truly heart-wrenching. He did not listen. Raider made Joey move into his own bedroom, where he strangled and suffocated him, and according to reports, even brought a chair into the room where he sat and watched as the little boy slowly died. He returned to the other room to Josephine and attempted to strangle her. Again, he failed. Um, When 11-year-old Josephine regained consciousness, he made her walk down to the basement. He put a noose around her neck and he stopped to ask if she had a camera, which they did not. But my God, having the presence of mind to stop during all of this and ask for a camera. So he is obviously the scum of the earth. Um, Josie, or Josephine, was then hanged from a pipe in the basement. He then masturbated and left his semen there at the scene. DNA was not really a big thing back at this time. Um, So yeah, he just left it there. All of this is obviously extremely troubling and awful. I do want to just note that nobody was sexually assaulted, which, you know, obviously this is awful and that doesn't make it better, but also... It personally made me feel a little bit better. I don't know. It's just awful all around. Um, Anyway, Raider cleaned up a little bit. He stole a few items from the house, got the rest of his crap, and left. Uh, Apparently, he drove their car to a nearby supermarket and tossed the keys on the roof of the store. Uh, Apparently, Raider was unaware that the Oteros had three other children which I find odd if he spent so much time casing the house and the family, but whatever. Unfortunately, 
Daniel and Carmen were the ones to find their parents' bodies when they came home from school. Their older brother, Charlie, came in later, and they called to him when he came in, saying for him to come quick because they thought their parents were playing a trick on them. Can you imagine? Like, ugh. Okay. So, in April of 1974, Dennis picked someone new to stalk. Her name was Catherine Bray. She was 21. He came again in through the back door and hid in a bedroom waiting. At about 2 p.m., Catherine came home. Her brother was with her. Uh, Dennis stepped out of the bedroom with his gun and apparently told them the same story he told the Oteros about how he was a criminal and he needed things from them. Whatever. Uh, Raider forced the brother and sister into a bedroom where he tied them up. I've seen different reports that they were in the same room. You know, they were in different rooms while all this was going on. Um, bottom line is this. He didn't do a good enough job tying up Kevin, that's the brother, and he got free. He wrestled for the gun with Raider. In the struggle, he unfortunately was shot twice in the head. Kevin, bleeding, appeared to be dying, so Raider turned his attention back to Catherine. She fought for her life, but Dennis, growing tired of the struggle, stabbed her repeatedly. Uh, while this is happening, Kevin somehow found the strength to get up and run out of the house, which is a badass move. Raider f- realized uh, he fled. Hold on. Let's go back. <laughs> Raider realized that he had left. Kevin had left the scene. So Raider fled the scene and ran several blocks to where he had parked his car earlier. Uh, Kevin was able to get help. Um... And survived. His sister Catherine, though, despite valiant efforts to save her life, died in the hospital hours later. Uh, Apparently, some other convicts tried to claim that they were responsible for the Otero killings, but this did not make Dennis happy. He contacted the editor of a newspaper called the Wichita Eagle and directed them to a certain engineering book that was located in a local public library. Inside the book was a letter detailing the terrible facts of the then-unsolved Otero murder case. He wanted it to be known that it was him who had done it, nobody else. It was then he introduced himself as BTK, or bind them, torture them, kill them. He signed this letter and future correspondence with a shortened version, so it was BTK. Uh, BTK then went silent. His wife had given birth to their first child, a boy. And he got busy being a dad. How nice for him, right? Uh, He did not commit any more murders until 1977, though he would later say that the stalking or trolling of potential victims never stopped. Um, In March 1977, the murder break was over. He had been trolling a particular neighborhood and had a potential victim or potential victims in mind, but on the day he decided to act on his twisted fantasies, nobody was at the houses of the people he had in mind. He went down the street and came across a five-year-old boy who had been on his way back from an errand his mother had sent him on. Sidebar. Imagine nowadays anybody letting their five-year-old walk around town unsupervised. Yeesh. So... Raider pulls out a picture of his own wife and child and asks the little boy, Steve, if he recognized them. He said no and continued on his way home. And Dennis must have paid close attention because a short while later he knocked on the door of his home. Five-year-old Steve answered the door. 
Raider was acting like somebody official, so like a cop or detective or something like that, and entered the home. There were two other kids in the home as well, um, Steve's eight-year-old brother and four-year-old sister. Their mom, who I believe Steve had said um, had been sick that day, came out of the bedroom in a bathrobe and wanted to know what the hell was going on because obviously something is weird, you know, something is weird, some strangers in her house. Um, it was then that Raider took out his gun and herded all the kids into the bathroom and barricaded them inside. He pushed a bed up against the door as well. Um, allegedly, he made his intentions known to Steve's mother, Shirley, more playing it off like he was going to rape her, but that is not what happened. He strangled her with a cord or rope, killing her, and very, very unfortunately, her son Steve had been peering out through the crack in the door, and he saw everything. Um, there was a pair of panties left next to the bed, sorry, next to the body, that semen would be discovered on. A ringing phone caused Raider to hastily depart the premises, um, which apparently spared the children's lives because he had been thinking of killing them as well. The kids were able to finally break out of the bathroom and get help. So, next, December 1977, Nancy Fox is the new target. He broke into her duplex home through a bedroom window. He cut the phone line and waited. Nancy came home that evening from work and was met in her kitchen by Raider. He stated he needed to tie her up. He needed to tie her up. That's what he said. And rape her. In this case, again, the victim was ordered into the bedroom and tied to her bed. He took the opportunity to announce who he really was, that he was responsible for the death of the Oteros and strangle her to death. Seaman was found on nightgown left near the body. The next morning, while he was on duty for ADT, he apparently stopped at a phone booth and called the police, letting them know that they would find a homicide, that's how he said it, homicide, and gave both the name and the address of the victim. They now had his voice on a recording, and would, um, they would play it over and over through different media outlets in Wichita, but nobody recognized Raider's voice. Um, in 1978, Dennis sent a postcard with a poem to the Wichita Eagle, that's the same paper as before, but nobody really understood it or thought that it was anything of importance, really, until days later. Um, a letter was sent as a follow-up where the writer took responsibility for the Otero Shirley Vian, Nancy Fox, and un- a named other victim. I have no idea what's going on over here, so bear with me. Um... A named other victim later believed to be Catherine Bright. Oh my god, what's going on? Sorry guys, cats are going crazy. Anyway, uh, it said this letter was written in the same style as the 1974 letter. This was also the first time BTK referred to something he called Factor X, which he believed was a demon or something of the like that lived within him, and that's the reason he needed to kill. He included some kind of weird poem, Ode Death to Nancy, which was supposed to be kind of a play on an old folk song called Ode Death. Um, The whole time, the correspondence and details surrounding these murders have been kept from the public 
However, with this last letter, the police department decided it was time to publicly announce that there was a serial killer in their midst. Citizens of Wichita were told to be extra cautious and look out for one another. Um, There's another murder break from June of that year until 1979 when Raider's wife gave birth to their second child who was a girl named Carrie or is a girl named Carrie. She also just put out a book recently about her experience with her father called A Serial Killer's Daughter. Uh, We come to April 1979. Raider breaks into the home of Anna Williams. She was a 63-year-old widow. Her husband had recently passed away. Uh, Raider waited inside her house but got impatient when she did not arrive for several hours luckily he left before she arrives he did take a few items from her home before leaving and about two months later sent anna a package in the mail that included a poem called oh anna why didn't you appear and a drawing of what he planned on doing to her and a few of the things he had stolen uh it wasn't specified whether he sent those things back or drew a picture of them which I feel like that would be weird to draw a picture of things you took. Uh, so I'm assuming he'd maybe sent them back. Um, so a similar package was sent to, I think it's K-A-K-E TV Studios the next day. Um, Anna decided to move the F out of Wichita because that was enough creepy shit for her. There's another break, as far as we know. Um, Dennis got busy with day-to-day life. He became more active in his local church. He became a Cub Scout leader and I believe stuck with it as his son moved through the ranks in the Scouts, eventually becoming an Eagle Scout. It's pretty clear at this point that Dennis was comfortable and more than capable of living these two separate lives without either, you know, kind of either of them interfering with each other. It seemed he had a... He had become, you know, really great at kind of controlling when his dark side would be allowed to come out and play. Um, So we're on to 1985. Raider is 40 years old and it is presumed it had been a few years since his last murder. But he decided it was time. This time his target lived right on the same street. Maureen Hedge was uh, a neighbor. It should be mentioned that the Raiders had moved to Park City by this point, so they had been neighbors with Maureen for a couple of years. She was 53 years old, had four grown children, and neighbors uh, would describe her kind of as pleasant and polite. In April of that year, Dennis was doing a Boy Scout camp out outside of Wichita with his son and his troop. He left stating he had a headache and acted like he was going to the store to get something to help with it. What he actually did was went to a bar, took a few sips of beer, spit it out. Why would you ever do that? Why would you waste it? Whatever. Um, he got some on his clothes because he wanted to appear drunk. He calls a cab and has the driver drop him off at a park so he can walk it off before he goes home. The problem is that the park is right next to Marine Hedge's house. He goes through her backyard, cuts the phone line, pries open the back door and discovers nobody's home. He hides in her bedroom closet and waits, which is absolute nightmare fuel. As a kid, you're always afraid of the boogeyman being in your closet. And in this case, that's exactly right. Maureen comes home. She has a male friend with her. The friend leaves around 1am. Raider is still in her closet waiting. 
He waits for her to go to bed and fall asleep before coming out of the closet and then choked her to to death in her own bed. Unfortunately, he wasn't done. And he hauled Maureen wrapped in her bedding out to her car and put her in the trunk. Where was he going to go? Why, the first place any of us would think to go to do terrible things, church. He goes right to his church. He tapes up the basement windows, brings her body inside and poses it in several positions, taking pictures, documenting each one. Uh, He had spent more time than he intended, so he brought her back to the car and found a ditch to dump her in um, a couple miles outside of Park City. Knotted pantyhose were left by her body. It's assumed that they had played some kind of part in that night's activities. Dennis then shot back over to the Boy Scout camp and switched back into Scout Leader Dead Mode. So, Raider had his eye on a new prospect, Vicki Weggerly. She was 28, married, mom to two. After 10 a.m., September 16, 1986, he goes to the house, di- uh, disguised, I must have diagnosed, which is not appropriate for that, um, as a telephone repairman. He managed to get himself inside and actually did mess around with the phone. After he had had enough of that, he forced her into the bedroom, probably at gunpoint, and tied her up. She fought and scratched, but ultimately he was able to secure her. He strangled her to death with pantyhose and photographed her in a few poses as she lay dying before fleeing the site. Her husband came home shortly after and was on a... Wow, I can't talk today. Sorry, guys. Was unable to locate her initially. Eventually, he found her body in the bedroom on the floor in between the bed and the wall. Uh, When questioned, Vicky's husband, Bill, even stated he saw their car headed in the opposite direction as he was driving home. Uh, Dennis drove around the city, getting rid of evidence here and there. He actually returned the car, parking it a few blocks from the Weggerly home. BTK was actually not suspected of this crime for quite a while. Um, at the end of 1987, a family murder occurred. Uh, Philip Fager and his two daughters, somebody, not BTK, went to trial for the murder but was acquitted due to lack of evidence. Uh, in early 1988, the lone survivor, Mary Fager, that's Philip's wife, received a letter from BTK saying he did not commit the murders but he admired the work of the person who did. I mean, what the hell? Really rubbing salt in those wounds, guy. Um, As he was pretty upfront about claiming his work, I think we can trust that this is not one that was done by BTK, as it was really his way to not accept credit for something he had done. He was all about that, so... Um, 1988, Dennis finds himself fired from ADT. They claimed he was not meeting his quota, and I mean, how could he be? He was too busy stalking and murdering people, drawing sketches, writing letters. That takes up a lot of time. Uh, he wound up getting some kind of supervisory job in the government, local government. He would not commit another murder until 1991, which would be his last. Uh, But remember, through all of this, he's basically a leader in the church, a Boy Scout leader, a dad. Um, So Dolores Davis lived a mile or two from Dennis, but there has never really been any indication that they knew each other in any way. Dolores was in her early 60s. She lived alone. 
Um, after watching and casing her house for some time, he came up with a plan. There was a camping outing for the scouts, and he again slipped away from the camp for the evening. Allegedly, he had driven to his parents' house. Um, they were either out or away. He changed out of his scout uniform into his murder clothes and then drove to the Baptist church in Park City. Boy, did he love to involve that church in his crimes. Uh, he parked and walked to Dolores's house from there. Uh, when he got there, he noticed her light was on and she was reading. He waited in the dark for her to go to sleep. He took a cement block and broke the glass in the back to gain entry. Dolores came out of her room when she heard the sound and was confronted by Raider, who gave the old song a dance about him being a criminal uh, who needs money and food and whatever. He tied her up in the bedroom and strangled her. I read with a ligature or pantyhose, so it's not completely clear which it was. He also decided to sketch her final moments. Um, it's undetermined if he did so while he was there or later from memory. He took the body outside, put it in the trunk of her car, and drove it to a lake area where he left it temporarily. He went back to her house to clean up a bit. And then he walked back to the Baptist church. He then backtracked to get Dolores' body, then drove to a kind of remote area and dumped her body underneath a bridge. He left, uh, changed back into uniform. And I just want to say changing into a scout uniform and going to hang out with a bunch of kids after committing murder is just some next level unsettling shit. Um, apparently... The next night, he returned to the site to pose and photograph the body. In the blog that I got this information from, it stated that shortly after the murder, he took a photo of himself partially buried in a grave he had intended for Dolores, and he was wearing a creepy, very pale, almost like um, like a doll face-like mask. I have seen the picture, and it is creepy as hell, so feel free to Google that if you want to have some nightmares. Um, Dennis gets a new job. That's how I wrote it. He is hired as a compliance animal control officer, which I guess is like a combination animal catcher slash local code enforcer, which was probably his dream because of his need to control everything around him. There were varying reports about how he was, well, he was in this position, um, but he got a lot of feedback because he undoubtedly had a lot of contact with people. Some said he was friendly and efficient. Others said he was petty and controlling. So just kind of a dick who would write them, you know, citations. There was an incident where one particular woman was basically getting harassed by him and escalated to him looking in her windows and impounding her daughter's dog, making sure it got put down before anyone could come in and claim it. So... There's a special kind of hell for this person in particular, if you believe in such a thing. Um, not just a murderer, but a child, an animal killer as well. So, great. Uh, the rest of the 90s were pretty uneventful crime-wise, uh, crime but on the family front, his daughter was going to college, she got married, his son joined the Navy, his mom's in a nursing home, his dad passes away, um, Dennis becomes even more active in the church. In 2004, it was the 30th anniversary of the Otero family murders. The Wichita Eagle, 
same one I mentioned earlier, ran an article about BTK kind of in the vein of people forgetting about him and there being, you know, cold cases, you know, the Otero case being cold case. Um, because serial killers do not stop killing unless they are caught or dead, they speculated about what became of him. Dennis's pride could not stand this. People were forgetting about him. They thought he was in jail or an institution or he was dead. On March 17th in the witch, um, nope, that's not a word that was there. The Wichita Eagle received an envelope. It contained photocopies of Vicar, uh, Vicki Weggerly as she lay dying and a photocopy of her missing license police never recovered. He signed it with his BTK symbol thing that makes the B look like boobs. Google it. Um, this was passed on to the FBI who confirmed that it was a communication from BTK himself. So BTK was back. Uh, in May of 2004, he sent another letter, um, but to KAKETV. He created a word puzzle because he had to be bored, right? The FBI verified that this also came from BTK. So they were sure of that. Um, in June now, so again, like many other serial killers, these dates are getting closer together. Um, Raider taped a package to a stop sign somewhere in the middle of the city. This contained a letter detailing the Otero murders and a sketch presumed to be of Josephine of a bound female hanging by a rope. He also sent a chapter list um, entitled The BTK Story, which looks like it was intended to be a book about him. Um, In July, another package was found at the Wichita Public Library. It contained a message stating he had his sights set on a new victim and he planned to kill her in either fall or winter, but he had to do it quick because he was getting old. This guy sucks. Boo-hoo, sorry your back hurts. Uh, Police kept a lot of these details to themselves as they worked out what to do next, but they didn't want to provoke BTK into a killing spree. Um, Another package in October contained a bunch of cards that had different images pasted to them. Um, There was a collage of pictures of children with bindings drawn on them. There were some details about BTK's life, like where he was born, um, when his dad had died, claiming fascination with railroads. These were all false in an attempt to misdirect the authorities. Um, What the police did next was very smart. One person, Lieutenant Ken Landwehr, I want to say, Um, who is the lead detective, became the sole spokesperson for this case, creating almost kind of like an adversary that BTK could best. They kept him communicating and tried to do so without being inflammatory to keep him from lashing out. They had hoped if he kept communicating with them, he would finally slip up and make a mistake, something they could actually use. Uh, Raider left another package in December, leaning against a tree in a park, In it, there was a Barbie doll who had a plastic bag tied over her head, its hands and feet bound. Um, I definitely have questions about this. Like, did he buy this Barbie special? Was it one of his daughter's old ones? Um, At any rate, it's creepy. Also tied to the feet of the Barbie was Nancy Fox's driver's license. I've heard from different sources that this may have been a photocopy, but either way, you get the idea. Um, on January 1st, 2005, Dennis becomes the new president of his church council. Hooray! Uh, at the beginning of the new year, 
Dennis left a cereal box in the bed of a pickup truck. He wrote both BTK and bomb on it. This box was initially missed. Um, the guy whose truck it was in was just like, why the hell is this empty cereal box in the bed of my truck? And he threw it out. But a postcard from BTK alerted authorities that they may have missed something and authorities warned residents to be on the lookout for out of place items. Uh, the truck owner realizing this might be something was able to recover the box and alerted police. Uh, the truck owner worked at home Depot. So police checked surveillance footage and were able to see a blurry figure that had been around the truck. They were able to figure out, uh, also that the car of the suspicious figure was a black Jeep Cherokee. Uh, the box contained information about some of his next potential victims and a note asking if he could be traced to a floppy disk if he sent one in next time. He asked them to be honest. Uh, he also requested the response to be posted in the classified ad section in the Wichita Eagle newspaper. He also asked that they use his codename Rex. Um, another cereal box from the serial killer, get it? Ultimate bad dad humor. Uh, was discovered on January 25th due to the same postcard that was sent that led them to the first cereal box as it was missed the first time. Uh, The second cereal box contained another Barbie with a rope tied around its neck, tied to a piece of what looks like plumbing pipe. Um, The next communication... um, Wow, I did not write... Well... (laughs) The next communication was a postcard that said he would do a floppy disk test run in the next month or two. So it was nice of him to give them kind of a heads up to that. So another package arrives to KSAS TV studios. It had a letter, a piece of jewelry, and a purple floppy disk. They jumped on the floppy disk right away and found information on the disc that told them it came from Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita and saved under the name Dennis. Old people and technology, right? Uh, Detectives immediately began to stake out Dennis Rader's house, noting that he had a black Jeep Cherokee in his driveway. They were able to subpoena DNA from his daughter's medical records so they didn't tip him off um, and tested it against DNA that had been collected from one of the old crime scenes from the semen he had left near one of the bodies. The DNA came back as a familial match and they knew they had their guy, finally. Um, On February 25th, 2005, Dennis left work to go home and have lunch with his wife as he did every day. But he was surrounded by police and handcuffs. He did go quietly, but he did say something to the effect of, please tell my wife I'll be late for lunch. Um, when he saw Lieutenant Landwehr in a police car nearby, he quietly said, hello, Mr. Landwehr, because he's creepy like that. Um, they bring Mr. Raider to an interrogation room, and he is not really into talking to them until he's confronted with, uh, with the floppy disk and the DNA match. He poked the disk several times. There's a video of this. Um... And asked why they lied to him, because he clearly was so deserving of honesty and transparency. Um, From there, it said that he opened up and talked for something like 30 hours, confessing to everything. Dennis Rader was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. 
His house and his office had been raided and plenty of incriminating evidence had been found that backed up his guilt. The most evidence, though, was found in his filing cabinet in City Hall, copies of BTK correspondence, newspaper clippings, uh, photos of victims' driver's licenses, probably some of his weird sketches and poems were all found in there. His trial started on June 27, 2005, where he calmly and unemotionally recounted basically all he had done, very matter-of-factly and with no apologies. Um, On August 18th, the sentencing hearing, uh, victims' families were able to make statements which Rader appeared to shed some tears over. He was also given the opportunity to speak and did so for about 30 minutes and kind of went about it like he was accepting an award. He was thanking the police and everyone for all of their hard work in catching him. Um, this video is very easy to find. Check out YouTube. It's very bizarre. Uh, he was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences and moved to the El Dorado Correctional Facility. He will be eligible. <clears throat> Excuse me. He will be eligible for parole in 2180. So, you know, he'll be dead. Um, I mentioned earlier that his daughter, Carrie, just put out a book about her experience with him as her dad. And I just want to say, I fully understand people's anger towards this man, but some of that gets directed at his family. Um, you really have to remember that these people, you know, they're victims too. Their worlds got turned upside down too. So for sure, hate that man, but his family doesn't deserve any of it. Um... I read more than one article that says that his daughter suffers from both depression and PTSD. I'm sure it's super hard to live with, um, you know, learning that basically everything you knew growing up is a lie. I cannot imagine. Um, so that's BTK all wrapped up. Has anyone read Carrie's book so far? It's on my list. Want to know what you think about it? Um, Do me a favor, if you like this podcast, please like, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, Thank you for listening. And until next time, lock your doors and windows, people.